Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Mary Simon and Liz Lenevy. Hello, ladies. Hey. Today we are going to talk about calling the defendant adverse or hostile in your case. So a little background. When you are at trial, there are numerous ways that you can present evidence. And if you are in your case, typically when you call a witness to the stand, you have to ask open-ended questions and you can't lead that witness, which means that you're doing a lot of, tell me about that, tell me more about this and letting the witness do most of the talking, as opposed to cross-examination when, of course, all you want to do is lead and ask generally yes or no questions. So that's basic for those of you listening who maybe aren't trial attorneys. When you have a case with a defendant who is going to have a substantial amount of information about the facts of the case, You always want to consider whether to call that particular person in your case. In other words, to call them while you're putting on your evidence. And because they are adverse or hostile, then you can lead them even though you're putting them on directly in your case. So that's the caveat. There are many things to consider. How does that witness look to the jury? Is that person pretty likable? Do you think that person is going to be well-prepared? Does some of the testimony that he or she has already given critical to your case? Are there admissions that you'd like to put in front of the jury? And so you go through this analysis in really almost every case. Since we do a lot of medical malpractice cases, it's not very common to call the defendant doctor in our case Because typically that person is very well prepared, very well educated on the topics, and can probably do a better job explaining the science of it than almost anybody, aside from other experts. And so you don't really have a lot to gain by putting the defendant on in your case, because that defendant's probably going to make a pretty good witness. So that's the analysis. I had a trial recently. It was um, a sexual assault matter, civil matter, where the defendant was the accused, and we decided to put him on in our case. And I'll be the first one to admit that I was a little hesitant to do it. My co-counsel really thought it was the right thing to do because, based on the facts of the case, the defense was essentially that this sexual encounter was consensual. We went first, put our client on, and she told her story. We had taken the defendant's deposition, and so I had a really good idea of what he was going to say, and if he followed the script, so to speak, what he should have said at trial, or else risk being impeached. I also knew the personality of the defendant was someone who has a history of being persuasive. He was a salesman. And from my perspective, had a very high opinion of his ability to be persuasive. So I thought that I, between knowing the personality 
And having his own words that I could use against him, he also gave a statement aside from the deposition that was also free game to use if he strayed from that. Um, so after all that analysis, we decided to put him on in our case, which again, as I mentioned before, means that I could lead him and ask yes or no questions. And true to form, on the stand, I had started with some very matter-of-fact questions. Literally, how tall are you? How much do you weigh? How old are you? Because I wanted to paint a picture of the age difference, the size difference between my client and the defendant. And he struggled really to even answer those questions. So I thought, okay, because he was suspicious. He didn't know why I was asking those questions. And so his mind was trying to figure out where I was going and that was preventing him from being cooperative. And also true to form for that type of personality, he continued not wanting to answer my yes or no questions. And because we were in federal court, as is often the case, the judges don't have a lot of patience for witnesses who don't answer yes or no questions in a yes or no manner. The judge intervened a couple of times to try to get the witness to be cooperative and answer my questions. And so at the end, I believed that it was rather effective. And it, it wasn't a situation where I completely destroyed the guy, which is what I think we all want to do in cross-examinations. Mm -hmm. But because I was watching the jury become very annoyed with his inability to answer the questions and to really just tell his story the way he wanted to, whether it was responsive or not, um, they were not buying it. And that is completely different than what my client had done on the stand, which was try her very best to answer the leading questions with yes or no answers and really trying to be cooperative. And so it set up a really nice juxtaposition between my client answering questions, meaning she was answered truthfully, and the defendant not answering questions, meaning that he was not answering them truthfully. We ended up winning that case, luckily. And I wish I could say it was because of my wonderful cross-examination <laughs> of the defendant, but there, of course, were many factors involved, not the least of which was the just the wonderful clients that we had, my client and her husband, and of course, my co-counsel as well, who took the lead and did a wonderful job. But that was a topic that I thought was worth addressing today to our listeners about making the decision to call a witness adverse under what circumstances, what to look out for, how to prepare, and all those things. Liz, have you had the opportunity to call adverse witnesses? Yes. Uh, it has only gone to trial one time where I had made the decision to adversely call the defendant. And in this particular case, it was a corporate representative. I will say in my particular case, it was a premise liability case. We had decided to call adversely the corporate representative for the corporation. And really, this I, I will give credit where credit is due. This witness was very likable. He was very affable. He went up there. He had the jury laughing. I was nervous about calling him, but he had really important facts that I needed to get out. And we had gone back and forth about whether or not it would be enough to just read his deposition. 
and get those admissions that way, or if we did need to call him adversely. And eventually we did make the decision to call him live. And that was because throughout the litigation, we had made additional discoveries, specifically some regulations I really wanted to get out with him that hadn't been covered in the deposition. And part of the reason that a lot of this had not been covered in the deposition is because you hold a lot back because you want to save it for trial because it's good. It can be powerful evidence, especially if you can catch someone off guard with it. So we had held a lot back from him in his deposition that we now needed to get out at trial. And I'll say it was not, quote unquote, hostile. It was not aggressive. I think we both had an understanding that we wanted the jury to like us and to not think that we were being aggressive or hiding something or being pushy. So he was very nice to me. I was very nice to him. I even remember at one point, my co-counsel had brought up a flip chart for me because I was going to write some numbers down to, to go over with this corporate representative. And the flip chart slipped a little bit and it fell on the floor. And he made some joke about, oh, is that a lawsuit? And <laughs> jury had a couple of laughs and... I, I had to chuckle with them. Ha, very funny. Okay. <laughs> and we get up, we, we finish it. And it, it was very boring. I'll be honest. It was really boring. It was, there were no fireworks. It's I didn't destroy the guy. Right. I just got the information I needed to get out of him. And at the end of the trial, I was able to put all of that information into my closing PowerPoint. And I said, well, you remember when Mr. So-and-so, we brought him in our case. We, we called him in our case because we thought it was so important to get those facts out for you early on in this case. And we ran through them and it worked. We we won and, and the jury seemed very convinced by the admissions that we were able to get. And I know it would not have had the same impact if we had just read the deposition designations. And also if we had, I honestly, I don't think it would have had the same impact if we had let the defense just call him in their case. Right. Because then he would have gotten to, to set everything up beforehand, probably inoculate a couple of the things that I wanted to get out. So I do think that was the right decision to make. But you're right, Amy. It's not a common occurrence that we do it. The only other case I can think of where I did really want to call the defendant adversely was in a motor vehicle collision case where the defendant admitted he was texting sure. while driving. And I wanted to get that out not only be because I wanted to establish punitives, and I needed to establish punitives before we closed our case to make sure we didn't get dismissed on that. But also, I wanted the jury to get mad early on because my clients were really hurt. And it was because this fool couldn't put his phone down yeah. while he was driving. He was well old enough to understand that was wrong and that what he did was wrong. And I had gotten those admissions out in his deposition, of course, his his attorney had objected to them at the time, um, but it wasn't a recorded deposition, which the, a video recorded deposition, which looking back on it now, if I ever have another case like that, I will record right. the defendant's deposition in case something happens like what happened with my case where the defendant was not going to be at trial. And the reason the defendant was not going to be at trial was because he was incarcerated. Oh, oh gosh. And I tried real hard to, I asked the court, can, can we do a WebEx? Can we have him appear via WebEx? He can wear a suit. I'm fine. He doesn't have to wear his orange jumper. I, we can change the location on the little bottom of the corner so it doesn't say he's at the Department of Corrections. I'm, I'm willing to try to work with you to not have the jury understand that he's currently unavailable because he's in jail. 
but it's really important for me to be able to call him in my case. And so were you able? No. Oh, you weren't able to. No, she said no. And then I said, can I take another deposition of him for trial? I want to take a trial deposition. And again, same circumstances. We don't have to give the jury any indication that he's in jail. And the judge again said no. But it, it ended up not being a problem. We, we, we settled that case. We were able to resolve it ahead of time. But it did really frustrate me that I had this, what feels like a rare opportunity, where I've got really bad conduct right. that caused really serious injuries, and I wasn't able to showcase that in the trial. And that was frustrating. So I, I learned a lot from that process. But those that that's really been the only two times where I've either called the defendant adversely or really wanted to in a weird situation where I ended up not being able to. Does the jury get any qualification or information that that's not something that normally happens or for my case I made a big point of saying when the judge says Miss Gunn call your next witness I said we call the defendant adverse if anybody in the jury was listening and understood that I guess it could have gotten through but I was afraid to say more than that but I did want to try to say adverse to make it sound like this isn't normal but then again if you're the jury and you know we're still in our case as the plaintiffs and we're calling the defendant to the stand, I think that alone is enough to be like, wait a minute, this is a little strange. Yeah, because I would wonder what a jury would think about it. Because in my head, I'm thinking, why would they want to be calling someone on the other side of the case as one of their main witnesses? Yeah. So, yeah, it's got to mean something to them. And then do does the defendant get to... Does defense counsel get to recall, in their case, the defendant who you called adversely, or is that their one time on the stand? It's at the option of the defense attorney. You can, as the defense attorney, once I'm done with the, quote, cross, to do the direct. So obviously, if I'm getting the the defendant up on the stand, I'm not starting with, tell me about your educational background. Right. Tell me about where you live. I don't do any of that. You just start with what you want the jury to know. And so the defense counsel can then come up and say, tell us where you're from and blah, 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 and basically do their direct. And then after that's done, I get my chance to cross on oh, you do. what the direct is. I can't go over the same stuff I just went over, but obviously if there's been an hour of direct, there's probably going to be some stuff to cross on. Or, so that's one scenario. Or once I'm done with the cross, the defendant can sit back down I can either rest my case or put on the rest of my witnesses, rest my case, and then the defense attorney has the option to call, just like normal, his witnesses, including potentially the defendant. Then do does the plaintiff's lawyer get to then do a whole cross in the defense case? I don't think the judge would allow me to start my cross-examination all over again, but certainly I am allowed to cross on what the defendant has said in the direct testimony. Okay. So in that sense, if you're the defense attorney, it's probably better just to get it all done at once instead of letting a couple of days go by, particularly if it, if you thought it went well in the plaintiff's case. If you think it went well in the plaintiff's case and then you wait two days and put the defendant on and then I, it gets to go well for me again, I think that's a hard call to make for the defense attorney. It's probably better, and that's what happened in my case, just to do the direct, get the guy off the stand. Now, if the guy did great during my, quote, cross, then you might 
um, and you don't feel like you've been hurt by it at all, then you might want a second full day with the guy. So I think it's a little game day decisions going on. I think as a defense attorney, you should prepare your client for being put on the stand adverse every day of the trial. It's so interesting because initially, Amy, when I was hearing about your trial, I thought this is a fantastic idea. And then Liz, when you said that the corporate rep had the jury laughing, yeah, in my head, I was like, gosh, that is such a risk because if they like the corporate rep of the company, you'd think you wouldn't have the outcome that you got. Because in my head, I'm thinking, oh, the jury really likes the defendant. It really seems like a tough call. It sounds like you just really need to have a good read on the witness. I think a couple of things. Yes, you have to know this witness and the personality and what the testimony has been and how you think they're going to react and how you think the jury is going to like or dislike. That's first and foremost, because my initial reaction is no way am I putting that person on in my case because eh, they're kind of likable. Even if they say things that are harmful to their case and helpful to my case, if they get up and they're likable, because we all know two things have to happen for plaintiffs to win. The jury has to like the plaintiff and also dislike the defendant. So that's, Mary, that's exactly why I hesitate most times to put the defendant on in my case. Now, as I said, this was a unique situation where all the things lined up in terms of personality, prior testimony, what the way I thought the jury would re- react to this guy. And also it was a little bit of allowing him to make his own mistakes, inviting him with my questioning to dig his own hole, so to speak. Right. And it takes the right kind of research to figure out how that what kind of witness that person's going to be when they're called adverse now the other thing is having your testimony tight tight because if you get up there and your analysis has proven this is the right thing to do and you're pretty sure the jury's not going to love this person and you know what they're going to say you got to get them up and get them down If your cross-examination isn't tight and the person's likable and they're not really answering your questions, but you're not getting any help from the judge and you're not really able to control them, that could be a disaster. You have to have the testimony that is perfect for your case and important for your case ready to go. And that's where you get the video clips from the previous deposition. And you ask, and this is classic cross-examination, whether it's adverse witness or just a defense expert in the defense case is, here are the questions I want. Here are the answers that have already been given. Here's the reference to those answers in deposition page and line. And if that person doesn't answer it the exact same way, you're ready to impeach. And hopefully a few times of knocking them down like that will get them to cooperate. If you don't have those page and lines ready to go and the witness just starts answering the question the way they want to answer and you can't control them, then there's absolutely no way that's going to go well for you. So it's a combination of analyzing the personality and then having the admissions that you want the jury to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, ready to go. And I will say with my case where the corporate rep was a very likable guy, 
exactly what Amy said. Of it has to be tight. Keep it to the points that you want. Make them, and then sit down. Yeah. Don't give him more opportunities to make a good impression on the jury. Get them to like him. Luckily, in our case, we had such good facts that he, even as affable as he was, he could not explain them away. And there were a couple of times where he got a little squirmy. He was clearly well prepared. He had tried to dodge the question and just holding his feet to the fire. Not in an aggressive way because everyone likes him. So I don't want to be the person that's bullying him. But in a professional way of saying, sir, I understand your answer, but please listen to my question very carefully. And at that point, that also, I think, draws the jury's attention a little bit more. Like it's honestly best case scenario is they do fight and they do make it hostile because it makes the jury pay attention, but also it makes them look like they're hiding something. But in this situation, he didn't get hostile with me, but he did get a little evasive. And that honestly opened opened up a great opportunity for me to regain the jury's attention, regain control of the direct and make sure that these really important points that I was trying to drive home made it to the jury. And then I could just reiterate them throughout the rest of the trial and into my close. As we're having this discussion, I remember a case that settled before trial, but it was a med mal case. And we were going to call the defendant doctors. There were two different defendant doctors, and it was a medication error case. Mm -hmm. And both physicians agreed that there was an error, but were blaming each other. Nice. And so their depositions, it was very clear. Both of them were adamant. This thing happened. It shouldn't have happened. It caused harm to the plaintiff, but it wasn't me. It was them. <laughs> and our opening was going to be, we were going to have a slide with the with finger pointing. Like literally the image. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but not to be confused that we don't need to figure out which one. We just, we didn't need to in our case. But I remember we were going to call them because they were both so clear that it was the other person. And they were, I remember one of the doctors they were both likable, one way more so, I thought, than the other. But it wasn't going to be that much of an issue because they both agreed one of the elements of our case was proven, right? And so in that situation, if you've got a very clear admission of one of the elements of the case, then yeah, put them up and put them down. Unlike a direct examination, you don't have to do what I said earlier, which is state your name, your education, your training. What do you know? What have you... No, you just have to say, state your name. Is it your opinion that, or do you believe that Dr. Blah Blah is responsible for this or, or whatever the answer is? And do you also believe that this medication error caused or contributed to cause harm to plaintiff? And then in, in close, when you have your verdict director up, you point to it and you read the admissions again. You're like, check, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to even discuss this in the jury room. The defendant has admitted it. It caused to contribute to cause. Yeah, I think if you've got that kind of testimony, it's pretty darn good. Yeah, that I forgot about that until now, and it, it worked out really well for us. But I will say, just even, I would argue that if all you wanted, if you had 10 tight questions, the defendant gets up, you ask 10 tight questions, I still think that opens the door for the defense attorney then to say, okay, doctor, state your name, and where did you go to school? And how many charity organizations have you been in? And how many lives have you saved? Or I know most of that's improper character. That's the takeaway is, and the risk of it is that defendant's testimony 
bring more harm than good in your case? And that, to me, is the biggest question that you need to have an answer to before you make that decision. And when are the defendants called adversely? Obviously, that depends on it depends on the circumstance. But when you're going to call a defendant adversely, is it the first person on the stand? I that makes me nervous. I know because if it goes great, you don't really start out with a bang. In our case, the defendant, I believe, was our very last witness. And I felt like we had all of the elements of a case that the evidence had already gone in. I didn't need to put him on for admissions. It was just a decision that we made that was going to make our case better because we didn't think the jury was going to like him. I don't think I would start with the defendant. I just don't. Maybe I just don't have the risk, the bandwidth for risk for that. But I don't think I would. Yeah, I just it's such a tough decision just sitting here thinking about other cases that I have where it might be a good case to call the defendant adversely, but the risk. <laughs> that's what and that's my experience, too. And my co-counsel was like, no, I really think you have to do it. And I fought him on it. I'm like, what about this or what about that? We talked about it. And the next day we talked about it again because I was prepared to do my cross-examination, whether it was in my case or sure. case. And we talked about it. And he was like, no, I think you got to do it. I'm like, you know what? I can do it. I can do it. We're going to do it. The biggest thing that I would think as a juror is the plaintiff isn't scared of anything. That's a good point. Yeah. That is the biggest thing I was thinking because the jury wants to hear from the plaintiff. In a plaintiff's case, they want to hear from the plaintiff yeah. about what happened. And I think it takes a lot of heat out from the defendant. If you're going to put them on the stand in your case, there isn't this, okay, the plaintiffs, especially in the case that you're talking about, Amy, it's the case isn't, okay, that was the plaintiff's side. Now let's hear what happened according to the other right. side. It, other side of the story. Yes, there is no, it takes no, away that element of the other side of the story. Yeah which I really like. I have been writing down the personality, the level of preparedness of the defendant, what the admissions are, keeping your questions tight. And if I had to rank them in order of importance, I, I still think I would land on likability. I, I agree with you. I really do. I think that is just real risky to put on a likable defendant in your case, regardless of what he or she's going to say. Yeah. Because you're right, the jury expects to hear the defendant on the defendant's side or the in the defendant's new. case. And so their mentality has changed. Like, okay, we've heard the plaintiff's side of things, and I'm going to give that a grain of salt. And then I'm going to hear the defendant's side of the case, and I'm going to give that a grain of salt. But if you put the defendant on in the plaintiff's case, they're like, wait a minute. It's almost like it's one story. Yes, it is. This is these are the facts, people. This is straight up. There's no agenda here. It is both sides of the story right here. You decide. Because it's always mind boggling to me. And I, I know it was when I first started practicing and the first trial. Actually, I think I, as a clerk, even the first trial that I saw in a civil case, it, it was so naive of me to listen to the defense side and not a single thing that the plaintiff talked about is mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Like, are we on the same plane? Exactly. That's what I was thinking in my head. Oh, my gosh. This jury knows nothing about us, only knows what they've heard from these four attorneys standing up and what they're saying. And 
the attorneys are operating in two different universes. <laughs> Crazy one that I remember thinking to myself. For like a split second. Are we? Or is this the same case? Are we missing something? Yeah. And when you have a defendant who's really sympathetic and likable, I've been in trials before where the defendant doctor has cried. And I am sitting there thinking, oh, my God, the jury just, yep. they don't see a defendant anymore. They see a mom. Of, it's just, it's that other side of the story. I love taking that as making it one narrative by calling the defendant in your case. Yeah. But you got to make sure they're not going to cry. <laughs> uh, that's the worst. An apologetic crying defendant. I just, it's hard to deal with. So when we're talking about corporate representatives, that to me is a, a little bit of a different animal. We have lots of cases where we have recorded depositions of the person who speaks on behalf of the corporation. And is, I think, very common to take clips from those depositions and play them in the plaintiff's case, right? We take five minutes here, 10 minutes there, put it together, and then play it all the way through. Now, the defendant through the rule of completeness, can fill in some of the blanks, but they're not typically allowed to just designate every bit of the corporate rep deposition in exchange, and we have to play all of it in our case. We should have the right to pull out the sections that we want the jury to hear, and that eliminates the issue of having to subpoena the corporate rep to trial and then sit in the audience for a few days and then call them from the pews up to the stand because... These days, the corporate reps who give testimony don't sit at the table very often. But I know that there's it's a different thought process. And we sometimes want the defendant to think we're going to call the corporate rep live. And so we send the subpoena. How far in advance of the trial does that need to be done? I think it's 10 days in Missouri. Okay. So explain how that works. My process has always been to just email my defense counsel and say, hey, I, I want to call Mr. or Miss so-and-so in my case. Will you, do you need a subpoena or will you basically have an agreement with me that they'll appear? And so far, every time we have the subpoena ready and we right. send it out, like it's still attached, but we just ask, will you accept it? I've never had a defense attorney say, no, you have to go and find my client and serve them at work in front of their coworkers or at, at their house in front of their family. That They don't do that. They yeah. say, yeah, just give it to me and tell me what day you want them. I had a defense attorney tell me that once because he couldn't find his client. Oh, but yeah. it was a great case because the corporate representative who I wanted to call adversely his account of how this trucking case happened is that he wasn't there, so it didn't happen. Oh, okay. That's fun. Yeah, his testimony was the accident never happened. Okay. And I just really was excited to have that be a part of my case where we're all gathered because of this accident with the police report and the witnesses and the doctors and the... But to have someone say, I wasn't there, didn't happen. What me. Exactly. I, I mean, was excited to do that, but the case ended up getting resolved. But the defense attorney called me and went, hey, I can't accept this because I have no idea where he is and I don't want to be responsible for him not showing up to trial. I'll do my best. Yeah. But that's the honest truth. <laughs> and I just said, thank you very much. And yeah, I will prepare the subpoena and send it to the defense attorney. Always just feels like that's a step that at the end of the day, Maybe it's a trust thing, right? So if the defense attorneys, you never sent a subpoena, 
that makes me a little bit nervous. But you do send the subpoena or have that agreement with the defense counsel to make them wonder, are you, are they going to send this? Are they going to call this person? Does somebody else have to prep? There's some strategy in sending it. And then, of course, you can always play it by ear and then not call that person. Yeah, I always send it. I always send the trial subpoena, ask them if they're going to accept it. But I always put a deadline on it because sometimes you don't hear back. That's true. And so I'll just say, if I don't hear from you by X time, yeah, then we need to issue a subpoena. So please let me know. And normally that does. And I'll even preface it with just, a, I assume you're going to accept service, but I just need it in writing yeah. for before trial. And normally that gets a response if I put a deadline on it because otherwise you're just asking and there's not real recourse no. and you don't want to you don't want to go serve a subpoena on no defendant you don't want to do that it's a courtesy but it's also something that you got to have locked in because we've got the burden we right. got to do it or sometimes the defendant is incarcerated and i don't know how do i get a subpoena <laughs> past security yeah that's interesting oh anything can happen y'all Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We hope that you have enjoyed this discussion about calling witnesses adverse, when and how to do it. Please listen every Wednesday when we drop new episodes and send us any comments or questions to heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, Feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>